Welcome back to The Stack. This week, we speak with Joe Bryan, engineering manager at Talon and known to the network as Master Morzod, which bids us ask, if asking is permitted, is it like electricians or plumbing where pipes are fitted, where one begins apprenticing in knock, then journeymen get deeper in the Urbit engine block until if at 900,000 miles or more it hasn't thrown a rod, the shop gathers around and you're crowned Master Morzod. Today we discuss the following. Smoking is cool and healthy. What is Urbit? Kelvin versioning? Where is event log trimming? Why can't I issue certificates and why do I have to use Caddy as my web server? Little Grandma Clinton, German Shepherds, the Bay Area, and cactuses, or cacti. No, cactipodes. But first, the news. Item Senior. The greatest game in the history of the spoken word has come to Urbit in the form of Wordoo. If you thought the sale of Wordle to the New York Times was a grave abuse on the conscience of good men, fear not. Two good men have ported it, to abuse a phrase, to Urbit. Currently, you can only use four-letter words, so send your wife and children out of the room first. Then lock the door, dim the lights, and get down on some single-player word rotation. Ooh. Many thanks to Dalton. Sagram Savluk and Rabsef Bikram for their work. Once they bump it to five letters, yours truly, the universe's most powerful word rotator, has promised to do Drunken Master Wordu strategy videos. Peer into my mind as I shape the logos in real time. Item Junior. L2 user interface is so close you can taste it. I wouldn't suggest it, though. Licking a roll-up is a good way to get things twisted. If you want to have a peek, the beta site link is on our website. It looks slick, but I'd wait for an official announcement before committing my address space to it. If you want to live dangerously, do it with something less valuable than an Urbit star. Go skydiving with your mom. Two years ago, 10 brave posters were banned from Patreon for alleged terms of service violations. Banned from the bird site, their assets tied up in the Tulip Trust. They survive as soldiers of fortune on the squalid streets of Urbit. If you have a problem, if you've already asked Master Mordzad and he couldn't help you, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the D-Team. The D-Team includes Sikdev Pilnup, their leader, a cunning cryptographer with all his fingers on anything that pulses. Dashus Navnal, favored by Kek, the god of memes. He seeks to ascend to the realm of pure internet where his deity resides. He already knows you're looking for him. Tokrex Holpen, a compulsive painter of sigils, she's the brains of the operation. There's speculation she's a surviving Romanov who keeps herself perpetually young with a powerful cocktail of ivermectin and crab's blood. Rabsef Bikram, a crack hooner, formerly trained as a lawyer and thus twice a liar. Never trust anything he says. Sagram Savlok. Facing the worst of the cancel mob's abuse, Sagram Savluk was rebuilt better, faster, stronger on Urbit out of spare parts from Harold Ramis's corpse. Master of taming Rabsef's mad hooning into slick user interfaces. With special appearances by Sarpen Laplux, the Zoomer's Zoomer, currently in Undisclosed, where he's onboarding both the Russian and Ukrainian armies to Urbit. Palfan Fosluk, a dog in a hoodie. If you're looking for the D-Team, the best way to find them is Dalton.org. 
That's D-A-L-T-E-N dot O-R-G. Who knows? They might be looking for you, too. And now, our interview with Master Morzod. Normally, we don't really do introductions, but we just jump into it. But because I'm less aware of what part... I mean, I, I talk to you all over Urbit, but I'm, I'm not sure which part of Urbit is your baby. So where do you work on Urbit? So I have worked on just about all of it, uh, except the browser. And... Uh, for a while now, I work mostly on the runtime, so I work on Bear. And uh, very recently, I have taken uh, some more formal responsibility. So I'm something of an engineering manager, release manager. In other words, any anything goes wrong there, and uh, just shout at me. So let's talk about your uh, let's talk about your cigarettes that you're rolling here. What are you smoking? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a, I've got a great story for this, actually. Um, this is uh, pipe tobacco, Daughters and Ryan from Virginia. And uh, this, the story goes like this. I was broke and uh, newly married and spending a non-trivial uh, amount of money on, on tobacco. This is an unironic thanks, Obama. So if we want to go if we want to go deep, you know, hand-rolled cigarettes, tax class A, highly taxed. Um, right. Cigarette tobacco, tax class J, very lightly taxed. In comes the Obama administration, you know, taxes through the roof. Uh, so my wife comes to me and she's found uh, a listing for a used Honda CRV, And she's done the math, calculated the payment, and it's exactly what I'm spending every month on cigarettes. Uh, and I have her driving uh, like a 92 Volvo that might have been stolen. You know, that's a whole other story. Um, so long story short, I, uh, I stopped buying premium grade actual cigarette tobacco, started buying this cheap pipe tobacco on the Internet. And uh, uh, fast forward 10 years or something, and uh, I love it. It's what I smoke. You don't grow your own. Mm. No, my understanding is that that's a huge pain in the ass, but I've I've never Probably. tried the the bull weevil or something. Yeah, I mean, you're a little, Connecticut has a lot of uh, tobacco farms, but um, I've never lived anywhere else that did. And I think, yeah, it's it, if you're not doing it at scale, it's probably kind of a pain in the ass. William Gass is a a writer I I really admire, and um, he's he's talking about how how much of a shame it is that we don't smoke all the time anymore because back in his in in the 50s you would have a uh staff meeting he was a he was a college professor university professor and you'd have a staff meeting and he he said you could you could accentuate a point with the cigarette in your hand you know you could you had a like a physical representation of how pissed off you were or you know you could blow a big puff of smoke out across the table and really share your ire, or or you know wave your hand around and really accentuate your your feeling in conversation in a, in a uh, a meeting. Yeah, it's it's peak aesthetics. It is, yeah. You don't worry about the health. No. No. Is it just because you're too cool, or because you no, think it's I mean, all bullshit? There's the. There's the energy level benefits. There's the mental acuity. Um, yeah. I mean, I you know, I suspect, well, I believe it is widely established now that at least the secondhand claims 
uh, were utterly farcical, let's say, um, and that, uh, in my opinion, the other effects may be, um, let's say, overstated. Well, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, at worst, I mean, it's it's a genetic it's a genetic lottery, right? You know, if, if you have some genes, but that's true of anything, you know, coffee or whatever. I mean, I think getting rid of smoking, I've never been a smoker, but the, the, the lack of, you know, it was a primary way that people socialized and definitely like, I mean, I, I have known people where it's like, you know, uh, the like mental health patients and stuff like that. That was like, that's sometimes the only thing that keeps them going. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's, yes. The only thing I don't like about cigarette smokes is like the stale sweater smell or whatever after you've gone out to a bar oh, and yeah. smoking. Um, and so sure. I don't, I don't miss yeah. that, but whatever. Well, you see, I, I live in a, a very old, very drafty, uh, New England house. So there's no cigarette smell whatsoever. Uh, it just leaves. COVID is a direct result of all of this, uh, you can't smoke any more stuff. I'm staking a reputation on it. Oh yeah, it's the it's the dry run of the encroaching medical longhouse for sure. <laughs> All right. So what like what projects are you? I, I I have a difficulty. I have difficulty sort of like um, explaining this for normies, and I'm a normie. So what is it that you your work primarily involves? I mean, when you say I work on Veer, what is that for for normies? Oh no, uh, this is the inevitable, you know, introduction to a conversation about Urbit. Is like, uh, you know, well, let me tell you what Urbit is. Um, oh yeah, but I I don't have a better answer than that, right? So, Urbit's a new kind of computer uh, and a peer to peer yeah. network and identity system built on top of that, and. Uh, as a computer, uh, it admits a, a very strong sort of uh, um, virtual guest and material host kind of distinction. And so, yeah, I don't know if I can truncate this. I'm gonna I'm gonna just go for the uh, the full explanation and uh, feel free to to cut me off if this is boring old hat or if I'm lost in the weeds. Uh, go ahead. You want, you want a, you want a complete and, uh, um, what's the good adjective? <laughs> you want a definition of a computer that can live forever. Um, that's, that's just actually what the project is about in the, in the most fundamental sense. And that specification has to be as simple as possible. Um, for it to be, for that kind of ambition to be remotely viable. So the starting point, which I'm sure you've seen, is um, uh, a specification of computation itself that fits on a t-shirt. It's not quite yes. as simple as it could possibly be. There are simpler models, but it's about as simple as it can practically be. We do, in fact, actually just run that. Um, and that, of course, is knock. Um, and so we have, you know, you have a totalizing data model, you know, the, the Talos of Urbit is to pave the world in nouns. Um, and the knock is a, a pretty trivial function from noun to noun that's Turing complete, a fully general specification of computation. 
Um, so then, then the next layer up is that you specify the life cycle of a machine and you say that, you know, its state is just a function of everything that's happened to it. You know, so you have this kind of notional event log and a trivial function um, that applies the first thing in the log to everything else is in the log and, and you build up, you know, constructively uh, anything that happens to this machine. Um, but this is kind of too simple a model uh, to program in completely. It would be very, very tedious and very verbose. Um, and so, of course, you need a higher level language as well. The question comes up, well, why don't you just specify the higher level language? Um, and that gets back to the, the scale of the ambition. Um, that specification has to be as minimal as possible to maximize agreement and um, uh, implementation flexibility. Big language has lots of things in it, and it's going to be harder to get that right. Uh, it's certainly not something that you could just say, it's frozen, it's done. Uh, knock is basically, it's frozen, it's done. Uh, we could change it a couple more times, but uh, I'm, I'm frankly not sure that we will. I, I can't think of anything that I feel that it needs. All of those questions come up, you know, sort of at the next layer up of our use of knock. So that model of the machine is um, basically, you know, we would call it the Urbit model or more specifically the Arvo model. Um, Inside that model, we bootstrap uh, the compiler for Hoon, which is our higher level language. Uh, and then we sort of build up, you know, this kind of microkernel, IO channels, applications, all sorts of things uh, constructively out of that. Um, and so, you know, the thing to realize, of course, is that a function is inert. You know, it's a function in the sense of it's a deterministic mapping of an input to an output. Um, but it can't do anything. It just is. Uh, it must be called. The thing that calls the function, that is Arvo, um, that is the runtime. So a runtime has to do three things. It has to compute knock, it has to schedule events, and uh, you know, invoke Arvo on them as a function. Uh, and then it has to manage the persistence. So it has to, to keep that event log um, inviolate, right? You can't, you can't lose anything or the sort of transactional guarantees and robustness that falls out of this trivial model goes away as soon as you lose anything. Uh, so the runtime has the three roles of computation, you know, event scheduling and persistence. Um, and for now, that's a, that's a normal program. It runs on, you know, Unix, uh, Windows, Mac OS, um, and it's, it's a virtual machine. Uh, but it's a little bit different from, you know, most things that are called virtual machines are either virtualizing a physical machine or they're virtualizing just a programming environment. And um, this is somewhere in between the two of them. It's virtualizing this abstract machine. And so that's the runtime. That's you know what we call Ver. Uh, it's a big old C program that does those three things. And you know when you run Urbit on the command line, that's what you're running. How involved is is everybody in like the uh, the L2 solution? Is that something that you have to that you're like all hands, or is that far away from you? It was actually um, sort of phases. 
Uh, so Philip Wukdev was right. Um, designed and implemented, um, you know, the Hoon uh, smart contract layer, which is really what this is. It's a it's a bespoke uh, smart contract that you run on your ship, and it um, it receives two things. It receives the raw um, L2 transactions, but it also receives the events from Ethereum from L1 on Ethereum. Um, and then it collates them together into a single um, consistent state. So he designed that, proposed it, did the initial implementation. Uh, I came in sort of near the end of that phase and uh, helped out with some of the implementation details, did a little bit of optimization, um, did some code review. But then there's this there's this interesting dynamic with lots of things that, that you know, is maybe a little hard to articulate, but if we could get into it philosophically, it would be interesting, which is that um, the core of these kinds of projects is often simple, elegant, um, conceivably complete, and, and once the design is there, it's relatively straightforward um, to accomplish it and, and really feel like it's done. But then inevitably, there's just like a million ancillary things. Um, so a lot of work... Uh, from a lot of other people went into uh, what we're calling the roller, right, which batches and submits transactions into L2. Um, the interfaces it has for, uh, you know, external clients to read out L2 data like Bridge and other things. Uh, many rounds of, of changes, updates, testing for Bridge itself uh, to have a high level, you know, user interface into these things. And so yeah the 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 time gap and the sort of the asymmetry there um is kind of always surprising to me i i sort of i'm most interested in and the most excited about and kind of believe the most about the things that are sort of closest to that core right so urbit is these many different layers of technology you know and something like bridge is sort of depending on your perspective, maybe that's questionable whether it's part of urban or not, right? And uh, um, they get like less, you know, tethered down, less principled, um, harder to think about, harder to predict, harder to manage um, as they get farther and further uh, from their, that nice specification that fits on a t-shirt. So from, from my view, um, the core of L2 is, is uh, beautiful, elegant, works really well, uh, is pretty easy to understand. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm frankly pretty grateful that I, I haven't had to touch bridge. <laughs> uh, how about how about Urban itself from your perspective? Um, like how far away are you or are we from like a Kelvin, I don't know, one or two uh, or even zero, how far, how, how do, is it going to continue being, like, is the kernel going to continue being developed forever, or uh, is there some point at which you think, okay, this is, this is it, yeah, we have a perfect tool. Is that a, um, is that more of a, I guess, ideal goal, or is that something that actually can happen? Because, I, you know, you, you remember the, I guess, the genesis of the whole idea is that, you know, it's some, some future distant Martian computer that has has reached the point of perfect diamond hardness you know is is that possible in computing that's a great question that's only one of the the possible uh gen genesis of uh 
of this project, right? There's a yeah a paper I'm not sure if you've seen, which stipulates that it's uh, the boot ROM of a, an alien spaceship, you know, that crashed in right, right, right. Rosetta. Um, and there's another uh, rumors about a, a vision quest in the deserts of New Mexico. Um, oh, I, I want to explore all of the arcana, <laughs> if possible. Uh, but, you know, practically speaking, I, I do think, I do think it's actually achievable. I do think it will actually happen. Um, unfortunately, the numbers are really high, so I don't know if it'll if we'll be able to make it happen uh, in our lifetime. But I do, I do believe in it. I think that uh, the idea of Kelvin versioning and the commitment to it and practice of it uh, is maybe the most important thing about the project. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware there's some prior art here, uh, Donald Newth's uh, tech um, layout system is versioned with the digits of pi. Mm. And um, his promise is that it will be frozen forever upon his death and all bugs will become features. Um, and I think he may have used this this versioning scheme for um, other projects that he created. Uh, of course, I, I would assume uh, your countless listeners know uh, the Kelvin versioning counts down, you know, through analogy to uh, degrees Kelvin uh, and once it reaches zero, absolute zero, um, the versioned artifact is completely frozen in perpetuity. Uh, how, how do you make a decision that we've moved from, I don't know, 450 to 449 or something like that? What's the, right. how do you move down in, in a Kelvin version? Yeah, so there's a, a conceptual answer here and there's a practical answer. Um, yeah. And the conceptual answer is actually maybe really hard um, to articulate, and I'm not sure that I have it entirely even. Uh, it sort of depends on the level of the system you're talking about. Uh, the practical answer um, is, you know, there are practical answers on a continuum, but the most extreme version would be you, simple, you simply uh, commit to decrement the number as you release new versions. And that is my personal goal uh, to get to the operational point where we can say, uh, you know, you touched hoon.hoon, which is the bootstrap compiler for the hoon language, you know, the self-definition. Okay, well, <laughs> that's a new version. Um, and, and I think that that's actually sort of the right sort of spiritual answer as well, is just to say um, the numbers are going to go down and we're going to embrace the pressure that comes with that as they get smaller. Um, because if you if you make it a kind of open-ended conceptual question, is this change big enough? Um, you know, practically that's always just a judgment call. Um, and, and then logistically it's open to, you know, sort of endless amounts of debate. So that's where I would like to go conceptually, you know, sort of regardless of any particular level. Um, there are practical reasons that we are not doing that right now um, that basically just involve adding some features to the uh, version uh, enforcement and negotiation that we do. That negotiation exists to allow us to basically mandate lockstep updates between Arvo, the operating system, the guest, and VAR, the runtime, the host. Um, 
in case something has to change in a backward compatible way. And then the same relationship uh, between Arvo and uh, the user space applications that run inside of it. Uh, in case we have to, you know, break compatibility and say the standard library or in some vein. Um, but that mechanism as it exists right now is sort of inflexible. And so if we were rapidly decrementing Kelvin versions, we would be forcing uh, lots of unnecessary binary upgrades, uh, third parties, you know, to, issue, you know, cut new releases of their software and so on. And so we need some more flexibility and control to declare compatibility ranges over those interfaces. And then uh, my sincere hope is that soon we will be able to make the Kelvin versions go burr. It's like the opposite of the uh, uh, the shit corners. I don't know. Our, our goal is is number go down. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, you, you speak about Urbit in um, kind of like I hate to say this. I don't want to sound woo-woo because people already call us a cult, but it's it's kind of like a um, uh, religious uh, or spiritual. Hate that as well. What's the? Are, are there a lot of people at Talon and working on Urbit who have this sort of um, view about the the largeness of Urbit? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's a very unusual group of people and it's a very unusual um, perspective on software, on computing, on, on you know, just trying to produce something in the world. Uh, it's certainly not a perspective that I had um, before encountering and working on this project. Uh, I had a sort of very conventional software background, uh, a very like mercenary relationship to the things that I was building. And um, I mean, I, you know, I thought they were nuts. When I came across this thing, I just thought they were batshit crazy. Um, and you and were right. I always tell people, well, yeah, because so, you know, let's just say through, you know, uh, a prior experience or side channel of some kind, I, I had an inkling that there were serious people involved. And so I just suspended disbelief and decided to learn the system. And then once I learned the system, I was sort of incapable of reconstructing my prior mental state. And so I don't know if the last, you know, six years or so is just, you know, this elaborate case of Stockholm syndrome uh, or something else entirely. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there, because um, I, there, there are a few things that like this is an incredibly rare experience. So there's a few um, times in life that you can come across a thing that totally, as you say, restructures your maybe model of the world. I, this happened to me with learning um, a non-subject verb object language, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, to then you're ordering subject object verb, which is very odd. And, and the first thing that you have to do is six months of immersion in this new thing that you're learning until the world arranges itself such that uh, subjects and objects are fronted and then and then you experience like uh, the the verb the action across those things whereas you know we go subject action and then on what is the action taking place it's it's a very uh, I mean, as I'm saying, it, it only happens uh, very rarely in life that you get a complete, completely new mental model of the world. Put in, and Andy will probably 
understand this as somebody who's gotten pretty deep into Chinese as well, which is fairly alien. But uh, what I'm saying is either you're not crazy or we all are, I think. Well, well, thank you. I'll, I'll take it. Um, I want to I want to pick up on on uh, another aspect of the question that you asked about um, the viability of Calvin versioning, the idea of something uh, freezing. And of course, there's a there's a trivial answer just to like the, the logistical practicality of, of making such an artifact is that um, if you're if you're trying to build some kind of system that has to never change um, the easiest way to accomplish that is sort of to make it say as little as possible or to constrain you as little as possible um, and so I, I i get the sense that this is not broadly understood about knock in particular uh, a lot of people bounce off of it and you know uh, uh, especially experienced um, programmers uh, and they look at this and say, why, you know, why are these numbers arbitrary precision? You know, can they can be of any size or something like that? Why, you know, that's that's such a poor fit for the underlying machine. And that's such such a, a, you'll you'll never make that fast, basically, is what they're saying. But um, there's kind of escape hatches built in here at, at every level. So this is maybe. Um, uh, like arcane, you know, system implementation details or that kind of thing. But any any piece of digital data can be sort of trivially thought of as just a single number uh, without any loss of generality whatsoever. So, you know, your text message, just a number, you know, uh, and a, a second of this call, just a number. Uh, as one of my colleagues likes to say, you know, the Blu-ray rip of the director's cut of Shrek 3, just a number, um, right. uh, the address space of your machine, you know, that you're running the software on, just a number. And so not could be used as uh, a specification layer for the kind of machines that we're already running right now without any loss of generality. There's, there's really arbitrary degrees of freedom there. Now, there's research projects involved in making some dimensions of that practical or making it, you know, as fast as it could possibly be. There's kind of a lifetime of work there. But uh, there's the the sort of naive reaction of looking at, at the T-shirt and just being like, it's, it's just, you know, absurd that you would, uh, you know, cram all computation in the universe uh, into this T-shirt uh, is actually just wrong. Where do you see Urbit, or the use of Urbit? Like, since I, I never get to um, ask people who have these or express the long-term visions, uh, most every time I, I have somebody on, it's it's usually uh, the practical side of things right now. But what do you think the practical side of things in like two hundred years is? Since you're thinking, you express really long-term thinking. What do you think is the the pre I mean, you know. Swing the bat, basically, is what I'm asking you. There's no no way that you can possibly know what's going to happen in the future, but how yeah, you see it. I, mean, I, I, you know, knock is the only legal form of computing, is uh, is fairly obvious. Um, <laughs> we, we'll have to uh, make sure that we have our cryptographic weapons, so that we can <laughs> ensure that this is. 
<laughs> I mean, the the Galactic Senate is up and running, so the the plan, you know, the plan is well underway. Um, I, I I can't wait. I'm I'm gonna print mine tomorrow. Trust trust the plan. <laughs> I am. I'm a truster, man. Yeah. So so I you know unironically you know the only kind of software that exists you know is you know in orbit or is implementing orbit uh seems seems eminently uh reasonable to me um the so that's a you know ten thousand mile view or something um very hard of course to populate any specific detail or any pathway there but the dream the the sort of anchor point uh, in my vision is is something that Curtis uh, once wrote, which is that it's probably not possible uh, for any individual's orbit to have merely the maintenance burden of a rock, but it should be a cactus, right? Hmm. You, you water it every couple of months, you know, and that's about it, right? And that as the the seat right the home of uh an entire digital life with that level of maintenance um and all that that implies uh is almost the only thing that i think about do you spend a lot of time uh de crofting i suppose uh, to make to coin a word do you spend like um you you you, you end up with a bunch of uh code debt, technological debt, and things that have to be removed? Or is a lot of your time, or I should say maybe Talon's time, spent making sure that code isn't written that's going to have to be removed later on? Yeah, so it's probably unsurprising to you hearing these things that I'm something of a of a resident curmudgeon. Uh, and I, I definitely spend uh, some amount of time doing my best to prevent things from being written. Um, See, I think, uh, I think that that is, that's a noble pursuit. Spend all of your time. You can be like, you know, like the, the, the Plato of, uh, or the Socrates of, of Talon and just ask people if they really know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's these like, you know, waves of... of I mean, I, I say this, by the way, uh, I, I just want to put out there... I have no, I have no idea about any of this. Um, they they gave me a podcast, and when I say they, I mean uh, you don't the have Communist to say. Party. The Communist Party. So I, yeah, I don't know anything about it, but but uh, I I think it's it sounds like a noble noble quest <laughs> to be the gadfly. Yeah, I mean the the best parts of Urbit are undoubtedly the parts that have been rewritten the highest number of times. Um, and this is, of course, in total contrast to received wisdom about software, which says never, never rewrite anything. Um, uh, Joel Spolsky, who you may have heard of, uh, a rather famous um, writer on the topic of software best practices, who has lots of good advice and was, um, I think, the program manager of Excel in the early 2000s at Microsoft, uh, famously wrote uh, extensive uh, explanation and making the, making this case in great detail to never uh, rewrite software projects. 
um, and this was based on his experience at Microsoft where they had, uh, it wasn't NT, it was the other attempt before NT that, that you know, ingloriously failed. Um, and they had a lot of experience with the, the Microsoft Office suite in this regard. Uh, but in Orbit, this is just not true. And um, I think that's because the, the foundational ideas are just correct. And at least the, the initial layering of the system that I was talking about is just like, you know, undoubtedly right. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think anyone would, would disagree that the, the, the highest quality parts of the system have been rewritten the most times. And ideally you have the same people involved uh, in many of those rounds. The first time you implement something, you know, you're building the map. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you're going. Um, but it can take quite a long time after you've actually, you know. So there's the basic constraint, right, of making contact with reality. Um, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, and you could theorize about the thing until you're blue in the face. And, you know, sh show me the code of, of a system that actually works, right? Um, but then once you've done that, right, then, you know, you have a background thread chewing on the experience. And um, oftentimes you'll think of things where you had two things that, that could be one thing without any loss of generality, right? Or, um, yeah, you'll come up with idioms that, that better express the domain or, uh, you know, it could be anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to do this on the the Arvo microkernel itself, which is, it's kind of, you know, it's depending on your perspective, it's either the heart or the shell of the whole OS. Um, it's the state root of the system. Uh, it does event dispatch, it, it upgrades itself. And that's about it. But um, I was able to go through a couple of rounds on, uh, of rewrites on that. I'm certainly pretty happy with how that came out. Uh, that culminated in the uh, the final continuity breach uh, of, I, I guess it's a little over a year ago now, the end of end of 2020 that was. Oh, so that was your fault. That was my fault. Yeah. I you're the you're the reason that I had to do flag day and then and then un undo flag day and then breach again. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. I mean, I'm not responsible for flag day, but the author did an excellent job, and I, I don't think I could have done better. Um, I, I, it was, it was not flag day. In fact, it was, it was that I had gone through a breach before and this actually, I think happened to several other people and, um, and yeah, I can't even re really remember, um, anymore, but it was a, seems like it was a flag that was set on my ship and a bunch of other ones that, that, uh, wasn't the case for people who had new ships or, or knew what they were doing previously. A lot of my error in Urbit is not knowing anything and then going ahead and doing stuff anyway. Yeah, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to, honestly, unironically. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a host of great ironies here, right? Because if you have that, that picture in mind of the complete system that is, you know, self-maintaining to the degree that is like theoretically imaginable, it's gotten all the way there. Um, and then, you know, and it's a clean overlay, right? You know, it has reached escape velocity, you know, 
it's gone. Uh, there's no more tether uh, to the old decrepit world. Um, if you have that image in your head and then you think of the fact that, you know, we've sort of onboarded countless people and taught them to configure their firewall and to run Docker and like, you know, to set up, you know, to become Linux system administrators and do all these kinds of things. And it's, uh, uh, the gap is large. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because um, I knew nothing. This is true. Um, I, like, I, I'll embarrass myself and say I teach like high school Python. Uh, but I, I knew two years ago, I didn't know anything about Linux, um, except that it existed. And uh, I don't, I didn't get onto Urbit because I read Curtis and was a fanboy. I think that by that time, you know, most of the Neo reaction stuff was several years in the past anyway. Um, so it wasn't as a result of that. It was that somebody, uh, what, what's, what's, Neo, was doing what's Neo reaction? Uh, it's the, it's. It's like it's like the the new Pepsi, uh, what is it? Pepsi Clear, something like okay. that, of old reaction. Yeah, it's a philosophy philosophy of impulsivity, right? You know, you you cultivate reactions, new reactions. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so the 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 thing is, I I ended up learning uh, a great deal just because I I think the I think that the reason that I did that was because. Um, I found the vision so exciting, the one that you've described, which is having a an, a forever computer and a, um, I guess, the idea of creating a computing artifact that, li that lasts forever. And, you know, my, gran it, 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 my grandsons potentially can be uh, inheriting their grandfather's computer um, stripped of the browser history. Uh, that's a powerful, like that's a pretty powerful idea. And that was the beginning, right? That was like the first idea that I had about it uh, that was so compelling. And then now, you know, I've been uh, like, I, I've, Andy and I have been doing this for two years now, which is, uh, or what is like a year and a half maybe? It's sort of very strange, but um, about six months, six or seven months after we, we got our Urbits, we started a podcast. And uh, yeah, people are giving us money for it, which is weird two years later. Anyway, the point is that that the um, that created in me the need to become someone who understood something about Linux. And as you mentioned, something about Docker. And then I needed to know something about what else I need to know, uh, how to... Um, run a web server, so you know, like writing writing caddy files and things like that. Uh, I wasn't not not a very technical person, and my my background's in linguistics, so I have no idea about this stuff. And Andy is like a finance guy, so he knows some, but not very much either. But now you know, now we we know enough to to really break it in more profound ways. Our capacity for breaking an orbit has increased several fold, which is a win. I mean, it's excellent, you know. Yeah. If there's if there's anything, if there's anything I wanted to accomplish in in this project, it's uh, to increase the adoption of caddy. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this is this is a, a personal point of uh, of great shame because the first project uh, that I did when I joined Klon uh, was to implement 
uh, TLS, SSL, in the HTTP server to implement mm -hmm. uh, a let's, em let's Encrypt client in Hoon and then to implement uh, a dynamic DNS system to glue it all together automatically. And this is, oh, um, right. this is the prehistory uh, before you illustrious gentlemen uh, made your arrival. Um, but all of these things landed at the same time along with many other things that all landed at the same time uh, along with Curtis's departure. So this is the release at the very beginning of 2019. Azimuth is released, real cryptographic identities. Uh, much work went into creating that, of course, but then into integrating it with Urbit. The, the network and PKI worked much differently before that. Um, a round of language changes, a new build system, uh, many, many things. It all landed all at once. Uh, it's great. Uh, if you go back and read Galen's announcement blog post, uh, the first line is uh, you can sort of feel the tension in it. And it's like, you know, in a matter of a few days, you will be able to boot a ship with a real cryptographic identity. And that's because the release had slipped a couple of weeks because uh, uh, my stuff kept breaking. And basically everything had been developed separately and pulled together at the last minute and nothing worked. Uh, is not an exaggeration. Um, so we spent the first six months of 2019 um, picking up the pieces, fighting fires, you know, recursively, right? So there's memory problems. There was a new, the bytecode interpreter landed at the same time. Memory problems, we've discovered that uh, our tooling uh, has decayed and broken. Bar mass doesn't work, event log replay doesn't work, on and on and on. Long story short, all hands on deck putting out fires, uh, and my, uh, my pet project uh, basically got scrapped for parts along the way, and, and I've never made it back. So, so it's a personal insult to me, just so everyone is right. crystal clear on this. Every time you use Caddy, uh, it's, a, it's a direct it's a slap rebuke. in your face. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I remember asking, I can remember asking if I could encrypt, or if I could set up a certificate, I think. Yeah. And you answered and said, uh yeah it's it's theoretically possible to do <laughs> <laughs> and then you gave me a nice uh i mean as i said i'm technologically illiterate you gave me a nice uh long description of how i could do it if i weren't retarded and uh i was just like all right i'll just uh i'll just stay i think i'll stick with caddy on this one yeah but yeah i i would I, I mean obviously i would like to see um i would like to see a bespoke urbit you know uh certificate scheme right so yeah absolutely um it's a in an interesting way this whole experience if i can uh, uh indulge in a, a, a little megalomania for a moment here um uh this whole experience is this kind of vindication of urbit's larger thesis right so the the conventional thinking about software certainly the unix philosophy but expressed just over and over in the industry in many different forms is that you make sort of small separate things they have a limited uh you know domain they have interfaces that other things can use but you know like uh, separation of concerns highly highly touted whether it's the Unix philosophy or service-oriented architecture or microservices, or this idea comes around under a different name basically every couple of years. Um, and Urbit says no, right? The 
runtime environment is the operating system, is the network protocol. We're just going to take things that have always traditionally been completely separate uh, and glue them together into one thing. Um, and what that gives us, that gives us these kinds of cross-cutting capabilities um, and the ability to make kinds of technical guarantees um, that are simply, you know, somewhere between difficult and, poss and impossible in traditional systems. Um, and I feel that there's a, a, a similar dynamic here, even though it's a much sort of narrower problem, and that is the intersection of um, basically opening up sockets, binding ports, doing NAT traversals, so being sort of independent of the, as independent as you can be of the local network conditions, uh, binding a domain name, gluing those all those things all together in a way that you can like programmatically verify them and um, then authenticate them right through some kind of certificate authority. Um, it's sort of tractable to make that a nice experience if you like take control over all the pieces. And if you don't, you're going to be stuck like trying to teach people how to configure and glue together like a bunch of different moving parts um you know and it's like the dream right the dream was that you would be able on any network where we could actually get packets through any network that was actually working you would be able to visit ship.arvo.network your ship you know uh and get it in your browser uh, and so there was, you know, also, anyway, there was all sorts of machinery at every level of the system to make this possible, but um, it was sort of, it was, it was in this strange state of immaturity where it would have required a lot of focus and it wasn't quite the most important thing to do. Um, and there wasn't like an incremental story towards making that viable. So anyway, that's my, without, my without commit without com over committing to this idea that that um, that Urbit's purpose is in any sense uh, to uh, how can I say this it is in any sense um, to bypass uh, censorship um, does does that does that lend itself to being able to people to be able to reach an orbit or get data from anywhere making it more difficult if i mean not impossible there's no such thing as as guarantees but um does it does it indeed make it more difficult to censor uh i guess orbit connections and data data over orbit uh yeah you can you can draw a connection there um that's a sort of an interesting this is, topic this is very tangential yeah. The the reason that I bring this up is because I mean we do media, and so I'm I'm trying to uh, I, I'm sort of bringing this in a very tangential way. Uh, that is, you know, getting away from traditional like TCP/IP or whatever. Does yeah. that? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it does. Um, so there's sort of from the ground up, right? There's kind of two dimensions to this problem. Uh, there's the data itself, and then of course there's the metadata, um, which is to say, you know, you want to communicate with somebody, uh, can some third party, you know, who is in the route uh, that that communication takes, uh, can they 
first of all, read the messages that you're sending? And second of all, can they observe that you're communicating? Um, Orbit solves the first problem in its own network, you know, more or less completely, right? Um, there is some argument of some ways that it could be uh, potentially better, but uh, it's pretty good. Um, and uh, you're talking about either fundamental breakthroughs that invalidate, you know, the blockchains of the world uh, for that to be broken or, you know, people making mistakes and, and risk of key compromise. And so there's things that you can do to limit the impact of key compromise. And this is generally referred to as forward secrecy. Um, right. So a key compromise doesn't uh, of some past state. Right. Doesn't doesn't invalidate future messages. There's like frequent, you know, discontinuities in the way that those messages are encrypted. Um, so that's a way that we could improve there. And this is in Urbit's network itself. Right. In, in Ames. Um, but Urbit doesn't attempt uh, at all to obscure the metadata. So if I'm sending messages to you, it's apparent to anybody who can observe that traffic that I'm sending messages to you. And the kinds of th systems that do attempt to obscure that metadata are, um, you know, mixnets, onion routers, things like Tor, I2P, more recently NIM. Um, and it's just sort of a whole, a whole different dimension of challenge there. Uh, it's not really something that we've started on. Um, to, to, to bring it back to the browser, right? Um, I mean, Urbit has a sort of uneasy relationship with the browser, kind of in general. Uh, it's just, it's like a, a it's just a necessary concession to practical considerations of trying to efficiently develop portable multi-platform user interfaces. Um, but in many ways, Urbit is kind of the, the anti-web. Um, and so the most compelling thing about this kind of feature that I'm talking about where you can get to your ship from anywhere, uh, I mean, it's really just about your phone. There's all sorts of alternatives if you're on a, a full desktop PC, right? You know, uh, we'll have the inevitable conversation about, well, maybe you put your planet in the cloud and you run a local moon or something like that. Um, but on your phone, you really want to be able to get to it and you really don't want people to be, you know, first of all, trying to figure out what their IP address is. Second of all, figuring out that uh, there's sort of no single answer to what your IP address is and it's all a matter of perspective, dude. And, uh, you know, wait a minute, what is port forwarding and, you know, down the rabbit hole we go. Um, so that's the, the, you know, the, the, the motivation of that kind of system is primarily around, um, like a really smooth end to end user experience, uh, in a world that's multi-device. Um, and yeah, we, uh, other than that, we sort of, you know, so far have always, you know, just disclaimed uh, TCP IP. Uh, Ames does run over UDP, but it sort of tries to pretend that it doesn't. And I'd like to see it uh, push much farther in that direction. Um, I think the best, yeah, the, you know, the best parts of the system are the core parts of the system where we do our best to pretend that there's like nothing but us and, and you know, I'd, I'd like to see that in, in the network as well. 
On the topic of, you know, censorship, I'd also push back on the framing a little bit. Um, I don't think Urbit is, is anti-censorship in, in any particular way, shape, or form. Um, if anything, uh, you know, uh, our goal is to maximize the number of censors, right? Um, uh, and so I don't know, there's, you know, that could be an interesting angle. It certainly ties into uh, the, the bizarre floating signifier that is decentralization. I think that the I think that the kind of censorship I'm talking about is where, the, where the middleman is censoring you on the behalf of someone else who would prefer to re, to connect with you, to connect to your ship, in this case, or somebody who would like to be able to read you know, the Gray Mirror Substack or something like that, and instead Chelsea Clinton has said that uh, actually. You know, there's too much. There's too much denial of science on that. What, what's platform. that all about? What, what are you talking about? And so I can't Who read. Far be it for me to come between a prince and his gray mirror. <laughs> um, I don't know. I uh, think some, that some Italian a long time ago. Anyway, Chelsea Clinton is 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 gonna have me murdered. Uh, I mean. <laughs> I don't think I don't think she has the same murderous tendencies as her parents, who are documented murderers. I think she just wants to get paid. She doesn't have the imagination, even. I mean, you look at her, and she's fugly, first of all. But like, you, you don't have that same. Like, you look at Hillary Clinton, and you just know she has ordered a death. It's not zero deaths, right? <laughs> this post I, I have, has been fact-checked by American patriots. It has. Uh, I remember, you know, I don't think it's kind, Andy. Andy, I, I don't think it's kind to say that about um, the work that has been done on Chelsea Clinton's face. Um, she... When I was in middle school, strangely enough, I mean, I, well, I say strangely enough because that, that speaks to how old I am, but I had a U.S. history teacher who said that um, he had just gotten a dog, uh, a pug, and um, I can remember this clearly. He was thinking of, of what he Buddy should name. Buddy the dog. That was the Clinton's dog. The Clinton's dog, Buddy, got hit by a truck. They say. Oh, no. I mean, my my U.S. history teacher's dog. He he got a dog. Oh. And, uh, and said, he, he was trying to come up with a name, and he was watching the evening news, and he saw Chelsea Clinton on the news and looked at his dog and looked at Chelsea and looked at his dog and looked back at Chelsea. And anyway, long story short, the dog's name was Chelsea. So there you go. I mean, just a little piece of um, apropos. Oh, that's raw. Apropos of very little. I, I don't know. Why am I saying that on air? It's a cruel thing to say, but then, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I'll tell you, um, among, like, I mean, like I said, the Clinton family has killed people. But, like, the worst <laughs> thing they ever did was they, the worst thing they ever did was they abandoned, do you remember Socks, the cat? 
when they yeah. like f- fake moved to New York because they couldn't be couldn't be asked with um, uh, Arkansas anymore. They moved to New York to um, uh, not Peekskill, Chappaqua, right? You know, and they they got bought a, They they had been in public service for twenty years or whatever at that point, and um, somehow were able to buy a multi million dollar state in Chappaqua. But they um, they they went up there and they left the cat with the secretary. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's and a that's lot of the that. sort of people they are. Isn't that you know? I I had people. You, do you remember that that uh, commercial with the the Joe Joe? That's that's the only pussy. The only pussy that uh, Bill Clinton didn't want anything to do with. Andy, my God, this is <laughs> this is this is this is a family show. I let my children listen to this. Uh, I yeah. You remember? Do you remember they had that commercial, Joe? I'm really sorry. We've gone on a a diatribe uh, <laughs> about about our American royalty. Um, yeah. Do you remember that the the commercial of uh, Joe Biden is the is a better choice because he loves dogs, right? And then they showed Trump with the uh. You know, like saying, can you imagine me with a dog, me walking around with a dog on a leash? Uh, it's terrible, right? And then they showed Joe loving his, I don't know, German Shepherds or whatever. And at the, around that- It's like a German Shepherd or something. Yeah, yeah I think so. And uh, so I got on, I got on Facebook. Some people were posting that and I posted a photo of Adolf Hitler with his German Shepherds because they were all saying, you know, nobody who hates dogs- uh, you know, it can be a good person, and so I put a I put a photo of Hitler with his German shepherds on Facebook, and Facebook censored that man. I didn't say anything. I didn't I didn't write any. I just replied <laughs> with a picture of Hitler's, you know, lovingly stroking his uh, German shepherds or Alsatians, if you like. But those few people before they censored it, those few people renounced liberalism. Yeah, I won. Because you had just devastated their worldview. Yeah. I ended I ended liberalism for four or five people before. And so that's what I'm this is why I'm so frustrated with and censorship. And you didn't even need facts and logic. You didn't nope. need facts and logic. You just nope. needed a picture. I mean like and it's a yep. thousand words. Every argument facts. on the internet ends with yeah. Hitler. Uh, they thought it's only in a bad way, right? It's, they always deteriorate into the into the Hitler argument. Uh, what is it, argumentum ad Hitleri or something like that. But it goes the other way too, which is that sometimes a, a really apt photo of Hitler will win hearts and minds. And that's what I think should be the takeaway of this episode. Well, if you demonstrate to someone that their viewpoint, <laughs> like what they're articulating is shared by Hitler, they then yeah. have to grant any any point that you ask them. Yeah, which is like that 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 Hitler basically, you know, they should just leave that guy alone, you know. It's enough already. Joe, are you satisfied to it have has this? Been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're satisfied I'm to have your name attached to this. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So anyway, uh, on Urbit, we're all good people who don't um, advocate national socialism at all uh i just want to put that out there it's a great place to sort of start wrapping this up which i think that the the telos of this episode was heading to there um aren't they all 
national soci socialism is uh, not a an ideology that we that we approve of. Uh, we like dogs. They're I think okay. we're going to take this out. We're it, it, like once you talk about national socialism, you get a lot of you get a lot of letters. I no, I said no national so socialism. It's bad. Okay, right. I clearly said it's bad, and we don't practice or want anyone practicing. It's socialism. Why would you want it? I mean, it's right there in the name. Um. I don't know how much of that I'm going to leave in. Surely something. But, uh... <laughs> of course. Uh, can we, can we bring Master this back to, where, where, to the um, realm of the same? When, before Tlon. Like, where do you where, stand you, on, you on Hitler? sort of a mercenary, um, gun-for-hire programming and stuff. But like, what, I've never cared for dogs, so I... <laughs> yeah, I, me either. I'm sorry, actually Andy, not a dog can you, I, I ru... Wait, Andy, sorry. I ruined that by... I ruined that. Can you ask the question again? I apologize. I hate dogs is the problem. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I actually, I want to, I want to expand on this, right? Let's, let's, no, we can bring this home. We can do it. Um, so I, I actually relocated, um, uh, sort of for the middle period of, um, of my time here at Tlon, uh, to the Bay area. Uh, in order to be in greater geographic proximity to my colleagues uh, and uh, being a, a, a person who has lived primarily in the woods, right? Of course, there was many, many culture shocks, but the, the most profound, I think, of all the bounty that the Bay has to offer um, was that, you know, you'd be walking on the sidewalk and you see somebody pushing a stroller. And, you know, I have young kids, you know, everybody likes a baby, you know, you sort of like, you get a little lift in your shoulders, right? You, the baby's going to walk, you know, go by in the stroller, you smile at the baby, wave, that's nice, you know. And invariably, it would be some quaffed dog. Yeah. And, and eventually, I had these sort of like, you know, involuntary, I disavow, you know, sort of fantasies of like a, a fight club. Um, sort of operation, but you know, targeting the dogs uh, because it just yeah, just throw it, throw it off the um, the San Jose Expressway or whatever. Well, I was thinking more of the soap, you know, but oh yeah, um, oh, turning the dogs into soap. Yeah, I think it's um, Muhammad also did not like dogs, um. And uh, so I, I think there's just... Well, I'm sold. Yeah, I don't know. He was... Josh owns a dog. I, I'm not going to so say that's anything. that's why he's very uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable. I wish the dog was soap. Uh, the dog came with my wife. I think he wife. was going to get a pelt, right? It wasn't, um, wasn't going to be soap. It was going to be the, the, the fur. Yeah, I mean, we were going to eat the dog because we're in Asia. But... <laughs> Uh, and I've I've threatened I've threatened uh, to turn the dog into, or sell the dog to a street, you know, farmer. And they 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 can turn him into meat, street meat, because it still happens here occasionally. Anyway, the point is I, I don't the the dog is sweet and stupid, uh, but it's a small Chinese apartment and he's miserable. Um, I'm miserable. 
It's not good for anybody, really. I like I like dogs that work because I grew up on a farm. This dog doesn't work. He um, gets hair on my couch. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that so Joe, uh, I'm... The, the, the chimp <laughs> yeah. in, in captivity, right? Yeah. Basically, what, yeah. Joe, what, uh, Master Morzad, if I may, what, um, what did you like about the Bay Area? Uh, the geography. Yeah. Yeah. Were you in the There's si- were lovely you, were, were hills, you in the, Were you in the city? Trees. Were you in the city or where, where, where did you live? No, I, I, um, insisted on finding some kind of nominal yard. Uh, so hilariously, I ended up right down the road from Facebook. Oh, okay. Uh, in Menlo Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did they yeah. know what were you, did you meet Facebook people who knew what you were working on? Uh, I never did actually. No, I, uh, was fairly antisocial and, you know. So you never un- tried to go for it? And, uh, and so on, you know, it's, uh. You never tried to go for lunch in the Facebook headquarters and get like, you know, about two minutes into it before the security uh, identified you and escorted you out? No, man. That place is hilarious looking. And look, you know what it reminds me of um, is the Universal Studios theme park. Mm-hmm. Oh. They've got like a, it's, I don't know what time period to try to place it in, but there's a, a part of the park, I haven't been there in ages, um, that's got like a, early to mid-century sort of like, you know, walkable street kind of vibe to it uh, and multicolored and whatever. And every time I drove past it, that's just that's just what I thought of. There's just, uh, yeah, the, I mean, Silicon Valley is so disappointing, right? It's just a, an utterly infantilizing culture. You know, any, any other like historic locus of wealth production in history um, at least has had the narcissism, like the self-confident mm. narcissism to build some kind of monument or something, right? And it's just, uh, uh, man, uh, we're going to burn it to the ground and uh, salt 101. Yeah. That's the, that's the, that's the mission. I, I've noticed that as a, as a people, they have, they have really poor taste as well. If uh, you, if you kitsch. went to like, if, if you went to uh, like a, a, a bar in the Bay Area and said, like, I work on Urbit, what percent, like, would most people just kind of be like, what, what are you talking about? Or is how much awareness is there of the project, whether positive or negative? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get the kind of run-ins that, that people have. You know, I literally, I, mean, I literally, so I just posted for the first time on Hacker News the other day, like, you know, in the last 48 hours. And all I said was, Urbit fixes yeah, this. Yeah, I saw this. Urbit fixes this. And like three seconds later, it's, it's like hidden or whatever, <laughs> like, like a, a flag. So there's, there's obviously, yeah. this is, there, there's, there, there's tension here. Oh, for sure. Well, and, and I mean, in some ways the heat on Urbit has, has certainly cooled. Uh, oh, that, this podcast will help. Culture uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but in other ways, 
uh, you know, just sort of like colloquially, you know, were crypto adjacent, right? And uh, um, there's a very vocal and influential contingent of techies who are are eager to demonstrate, you know, their horror at the existence of, uh, I don't know, unregulated currencies, hash functions, many, many things. Um, and so, you know, in some ways that contingent is louder and, and more established in that way. And it's kind of less, you know, directed at us specifically is the impression I get. Um, but also, yeah, I just didn't move in many, any social circles, um, but certainly not anything trendy. Um, uh, designers, you know, actually got that kind of thing more was my understanding or people who, you know, some of my colleagues who, uh, you know, were say like established in, you know, I don't know, some particular niche of the startup ecosystem or something like that. They'd been in the Bay Area for a long time. They certainly caught flack, lost friends, that sort of thing. But I don't know. I'm I'm old and boring, and they certainly you know, gained more friends than they lost. Went, went home to my kids. Oh well, they upgraded for sure. Yeah. I mean, where else are we going to have a conversation like this? So you don't miss it. You mm. don't miss it at all. Kind of going to where, where you are now. No. No, not at all. So where do you see, where do you see, um, Urbit in six months and six years? Okay. Six months and six years. Um, maybe the next big project after L2, what's that going to be in your mind? I mean, what would you like it to be? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, things we've talked about have been very sort of, you know, ethereal and abstract here, but uh, most of the things that I have been working on or, you know, helping others to work on are, are very mundane. Um, the most famous, of course, which is now just a long running joke, you know, in all corners of the network, uh, is event log truncation. Uh, I might as well just say this has been my, uh, assigned task for almost a year now. It may be a year now, actually. Um, and, uh, it's not done. Uh, and now I, I've uh, now I've delegated it to someone else, so it'll probably be done just like that. Um, this is obviously, you know, it's an unacceptable situation that the event logs grow without bound. Um, I, I'm sure you find gentlemen uh, as hosts of active groups uh, have have come into yeah, into direct we've... contact with this problem. Yeah, uh, uh, I like to I like to brag that in the era before the final breach then in the last punctuated network era of urbit uh, zod grew to be like 1.2 terabytes um and uh you know people kept hassling me for some kind of a solution i kept telling them like you know look the disk space is cheap like go make it bigger leave me alone um uh so concretely right like the 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 reason simply that that has taken so long is that it's a dramatic departure from the way that part of the system has worked. Um, the event log has always been the final source of truth. And if you start messing with that, uh, you better be sure you got it right. Um, because there's no fallback. 
whereas, you know, there's problems with snapshotting, problems with other persistence mechanism, but you can always fall back to the event lock and uh, shipping something to people and telling them that it's, you know, the early stages of this system that's supposed to last forever then, and then promptly losing their data. Uh, it's pretty horrifying. Uh, and so in, through the course of that work, uh, we uncovered sort of a whole bunch of prerequisites. And throughout 2021, I was you know, working to knock down those prerequisites, but also lots of other stuff happened. Event log truncation uh, will definitely be out in the next six months. That'll be a big step forward. Um, I'm, I'm now sort of tangentially involved in uh, the new Mars effort, which is uh, uh, an exciting prototype of ways to make NOC go I think much faster. Um, there's some other sort of similar kind of runtime research going on um, uh, in things that are sort of too involved to get into now, but maybe we do another round. Um, memory layout, efficiency, um, uh, a new jet system that should also be quite a bit more efficient. Um, so on the runtime, there's sort of only a couple of things really that we're trying to do um, primarily, and that is uh, make it much more robust, uh, you know, much more stable, much more uh, correct, um, increasingly like self-managing. There's lots of manual remediation. You know, I'm sure everyone uh, here and many listening have run bar meld. Uh, you know, just as one example, uh, and those, that kind of tooling can get much more sophisticated and it can also be deployed automatically for you much more frequently. Um, those things are kind of mutually dependent, um, because it would have to use much less memory. Um, but in general, there's a, a whole suite of, you know, lines of work, some of which aren't started yet, all about robustness, stability, self-management, correctness. Um, there's a few lines of work that are about performance. And then, it, you know, feature work is really sort of in the long tail after that. Um, you know, the runtime has these three jobs. Uh, it does decent jobs at two of them, a kind of mediocre job at persistence. We're, we're going hard on persistence and then we'll um, uh, turn towards, you know, integrating that into the other job. So that's what I would look for in the six months is, in the next six months on my side of things is a couple to a handful um, releases of the binary uh, focusing on stability, correctness, self-management, um, and hopefully we can just completely eradicate whole classes of bugs there. Um, uh, I don't have a lot of visibility, frankly, almost ever uh, into um, uh, landscape or plans there. I, I, I know that there are there are many plans in the works, but you know, it's just not really something that I could directly speak to. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll bring it back to the earlier conversation. Um, I personally, I, I think one of the most important things is to make Kelvin versions go burr. Um, you know, the... And we could extend that out, right? Uh, it's sort of much greater discipline around all kinds of release processes. So on the runtime, there's there's work to be done on, on testing approaches in conjunction with the other things that I'm talking about. I'm sure you've noticed that the pace of OTAs has gone much slower and sort of the dramatic impact of them has lessened considerably. That had sort of reached a fever pitch last fall of like 
really ambitious things being shipped sort of a little too early. Um, and it just sort of, it's in the zeitgeist now that kind of everything's leveled up. We're, we're preparing for the next level of scaling and uh, uh, these, these processes and releases and so forth need, um, they just need to be handled more maturely. Um, uh, I guess another line of work that I guess, you know, I'll go out on a limb and speculate a little bit. Um, there's a content distribution line of work, which is basically a, a new and faster network protocol. Um, uh, and there's a good chance that that could be on the network in the next six months. Um, and that, in its sort of fully realized form, um, enables, uh, like, the next level of scaling to a dramatic degree. So right now, it's hard to say what the limit on a, a practical number of ships in a group is, um, but it's probably in the single-digit thousands. Um, it's it's hard to imagine that it would really continue to function above much more than that. And, um, I mean, you want to add a lot of zeros there. And basically, that just requires changing the shape of the data flow in the network and lessening the obligations on host ships. Um, so that's a, a piece of infrastructure work that's going on now that I'm really excited about. Um, six years, man, I really, really hope in six years that the thing that we can deliver um, uh, can reasonably be described as cactus-like, right? Um, this You want this to be a, a piece of software that can be run, you know, on a non-expert pilot's machine and require just as close to zero maintenance as you can, can conceive. And we won't get all the way there, but um, something that can store, let's say, the bulk of the data that you care about and is, uh, yeah, is that trusted, reliable home is the, the place that you would look to first, you know. The for any kind of, yeah. Yeah, well, but but for any of the things that you want, it's already, it's funny, you know, because it's, it's immature in lots of ways, but it's already there for me. I feel much better about things that I have inside my orbit than, you know, random files of notes or whatever scattered around uh, my machine. You know, you, there's a, there's a tangibility, um, even in its sort of nascent form to the these these broader ideas that we're talking about but i guess that's the other thing that i would look for uh in the next six years you know i said that as you go up the layers of the system as you get farther from that crystalline core um they're more and more uh sort of speculative they're less tethered um there's m like the forces of entropy act on them more aggressively and drag them towards kind of more conventional patterns and um you know, the goal of the project is to take the things that are on the T-shirt, right? And to sort of bring those properties out, stretch them out as far as we can possibly bring them, hopefully bring them all the way up to your screen uh, so that the things that you're doing, uh, you know, calm computing is is a sort of signal towards this, right? But the things that you're doing, um, I I don't know. I, it's, it's sort of hard, uh, hard to summarize exactly what those properties are 
Uh, Galen always likes to talk about, um, you know, the tools of architecture, right? But, but in general, any tool in the physical world um, has intuitive properties. It's not going to surprise you, and it's not going to uh, just refuse to cooperate with you. And basically none of our digital tools operate that way in the slightest. And so th those are the two attributes that I would like to be the most clear uh, about the system in six years' time, is that it is a, you know, a practical, truly reliable, trustworthy digital home, and that your interactions with it have this kind of uh, solid, tangible uh, predictability. I think we can do it. Joe, thanks uh, very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Stack. To learn more, follow us on Twitter at The Orbis Ledger, or find us elsewhere on the Boomer web at orbisledger.news. That's O-R-B-I-S-L-E-D-G-E-R dot news. Here lies Master Moore. Four slugs from a 44. No mass, no more. Zod.